G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. You know what they say, if all else fails, pray. And frankly, that's how many people treat prayer. And yes, God will show up in a crisis. But the most powerful form of prayer is preemptive prayer, the sort of prayer we pray ahead of time. And that's the sort of prayer we're going to chat about today on the program. Powerful prayer, preemptive prayer. I'm Bernie Diamond and thank you so much for joining me again on Christianity Works. Today we're continuing with the next message in this series, Jesus Speaks, Jesus Heals, to lay hold of the power to change. And please do stay tuned because in just a few moments I'll be telling you about my free daily devotional, Fresh. It's all about helping you draw closer to Jesus and letting Him work in you to become all that He created you to be. My kids are all grown up now, but but I remember when they were young. Christmas morning, they'd get a bike or some present that needed to be assembled or put together. Now, I have to tell you, my mechanical skills are not all that good. In fact, they're shocking. I can make a piano sing. I can do a whole lot of other things, but putting things together, it's just not my gig. So I would dread Christmas mornings where there was something to put together. I'd always muck it up. I'd get cranky with it, whatever it was. And eventually, with steam coming out of my ears, my lovely wife would say, well, darling, why don't you read the instructions? Read the instructions? What? Uh, I guess. If all else fails, read the instructions. I'm sure there's many a dad who's been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. Reading the instruction was a matter of last resort. It's something you only did when everything else, including your personal mechanical brilliance, had failed. And that, as I said, is how many people treat prayer. Don't don't know where you're at, whether you believe in Jesus or whether prayer is something that, well, honestly, really only happens for you in the worst of circumstances as an absolute last resort. But prayer is often just that. I remember a chaplain in the army when I was an army officer telling me that there were no atheists in foxholes And that's true. When the bullets are flying and the bombs are going off around us, well, that's enough to drive anyone to prayer. But preemptive action is always better than remedial action. Let me say it again. Preemptive action is always better than remedial action. It's it's better not to drink and drive than to be in rehabilitation after a car accident, right? It's better to get your diet and exercise sorted out rather than to be on life support in hospital following a heart attack, no matter how good the hospital happens to be. Well, actually, the same is true about prayer. That's exactly what Jesus taught. And truly, if you want a better life, if you want a life with more peace and power, joy and love then preemptive prayer is exactly what you've been looking for. I know, I know, prayer isn't as popular as talking about better relationships, for instance, but then with preemptive prayer, truly, you are going to have better relationships. 
There's a young boy who had a demon. His father brought him to the disciples at a time when Jesus was busy somewhere else. The disciples, they tried to cast the demon out, but to no avail. Jesus comes along and casts the demon out in an instant. Let's pick it up. Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can come out only through prayer and fasting. Now just think about that for a moment. They're out there. Dad brings his son along who's convulsing and carrying on and and manifesting demons. When do you have time for prayer and fasting in all of that? The answer is you don't. It's something you had to do beforehand, preemptively. Because of your earnest prayer beforehand, you would already be in a place where you had the power to do what's needed. There's no other way of interpreting what Jesus said here to the disciples. See, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 to 13. And whenever you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites. See, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. But truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think they will be heard because of their many words. No, do not be like them. For your Father in heaven knows what you need, even before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to go through that in detail. In fact, I've written a whole book called Unlocking the Power of Prayer, just about this one prayer. But see how it's a prayer of humility, a prayer about God's name being lifted up, his kingdom coming, his will being done, and just one request for ourselves, enough food to eat for today. And then an exhortation to forgive. We'll we'll talk more about that after the break and a request for protection from the enemy. See, it's a prayer that's more about God than it is about us. It's a form of prayer that has the power to change our hearts and transform our lives, to get the focus off us and back onto God. Just stand back from it for a minute and compare that to how you normally pray. It's a sobering comparison, isn't it? Because more often than not, our prayer is a shopping list of stuff for us, what we want. Sure, we might pray for other people or a country following a natural disaster, but mostly we pray for ourselves, just reinforcing our selfishness. Imagine how different your perspective on life would be if most of your prayer was about God and his will. Imagine how different your life would be if most of your prayer was about God and his will. A person who prays like that is the sort of person that can step in at a moment's notice and cast that demon out of that boy because they're filled with the power of God, because their life is surrendered to God, because their heart is aching to see his will done on this earth and their eyes are open looking around to see what God's up to and how they can be involved for him and not for them. Do you see? Do you see how incredibly different your life could be? Whenever I talk about forgiveness on the program, I get a 
big response from people who are listening, much of it telling me about the terrible things that have happened to them and, and how difficult it is to forgive. And it's true. When someone's hurt you deeply, it's incredibly hard to forgive. Some of the stories that people share, they're enough to make your heart break. The question that I'm asked over and over again, though, is this. Okay, we know we're supposed to forgive, but how do we actually forgive other people? I mean, how? I know that I should, I just don't know how. And that, I have to tell you, is a really good question. I've had a couple of people in my life who hurt me incredibly deeply through serious betrayal. It's a couple of decades ago now, but it was such a deep hurt that if I hadn't learned how to forgive them, it would still be eating away at me like a cancer today. And that's why today we're going to talk about how to forgive. Not through anything clever I've come up with, but through what Jesus has to say. And that's what this series of messages, Jesus Speaks, Jesus Heals, is all about. You may remember last week on the program, we had a look at this scripture verse, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. There's something powerful and healing about Jesus speaking directly into your life. That's why we're spending this time in what I call the purple patch of teaching in the first few chapters of Matthew's Gospel, because I know that Jesus wants to bring some healing into your life through what he has to say. Yep, there are some amazing miracles in chapter 8, and we'll talk about a few of those at the end of this series. But my observation is that when Jesus speaks into your heart, when the Holy Spirit takes God's word and writes it on your heart, there are more miracles that happen through that than we ever see at a healing service. Amen? And, And if we can get Jesus' plan for getting forgiveness happening in your heart... Hey, that's a miracle. It's a miracle that sets you free from the hurts of the past. It's a miracle that I've experienced in my life. Max, my producer here in the studio and I, a few years ago, was sitting down for a cup of tea after one of our sessions together. Now, he knows some of the terrible things that have happened to me in the past. And he said something along these lines. He said, it's amazing how completely God has set you free from those things. Do you know what? I really hadn't thought of it that way. But what he said is absolutely true. And with all my heart, I believe it's because I get to spend a lot of time in God's Word to do what I do. And God's Word has taken root in my heart and sprouted and set me free. See, I'm amazed how we go chasing after help for our troubles here and there and everywhere else as though somehow an aspirin and a band-aid are going to help the deep hurts in our hearts. If you want to pull out a weed in your garden, you take it out by its roots, yeah? Well, it's the same with the hurts in our lives. There are plenty of people out there who will pander to your symptoms, but only Jesus will heal your diseases. Here's what Jesus said about forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 14. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And don't bring us into a time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. 
I want you to notice something about this teaching about forgiveness. It comes in the context of what? Of prayer. And that, that is the key to experiencing forgiveness. Finally being able to forgive someone for what they did to you and being set free from the burden of their wrong towards you. And unless you're set free, you're going to allow them to keep on hurting you. That's why forgiveness is so important. And actually, this is Jesus saying this, not me. God forgiving you is conditional on you forgiving others. And the way you do that is to pray for them. Again, here it is, Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Let me tell you something. The more you pray for the people who hurt you, the more God will set you free from the unforgiveness. The more you pray for the people who hurt you, the more the pain goes away, the more your life comes back, and the more you are able to forgive them. Look, it may not happen overnight, but it will happen. Forgiveness is when in our hearts we give up the right to punish those who have hurt us or or to get recompense or even an apology from them. I've heard it said you can't forgive someone unless they ask you for forgiveness. But that's not true. Jesus went and died on the cross for you before you ever asked for his forgiveness. Pray for your enemies and if you can, bless them. Keep doing that faithfully. And Jesus will do something for you that you yourself cannot do. He'll bring healing and forgiveness into your heart. He will set you free. And when he sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You see, it's the Jesus plan. (laughs) And it actually works. For many years of my life, I was addicted to chocolate. There's one particular brand here in Australia that most of the children of my generation grew up with. Cadbury's Dairy Milk Chocolate. Now, sure, you can buy fine Swiss chocolates like Lindt and others, but the staple chocolate, if I can call it that, of my generation was Cadbury's Dairy Milk. Still today, just as I sit here and think about it and speak about it, things start happening in my brain. I I can see the wrapper. I can smell the block of chocolate. I I can taste that smooth, velvety, sweet taste as I put a few squares in my mouth. And, And it's years since I've had a piece of that chocolate. It turns out that chocolate is a mood-altering food. When you eat chocolate, your brain increases its levels of the calming neurotransmitter serotonin, and it makes you feel better. On top of that, chocolate contains a compound called phenylethylamine, which acts like an amphetamine, stimulating the release of dopamine. And dopamine is your reward drug. It results in a mild antidepressant effect and ends up prompting blissful emotions. So that's why often people who are feeling down or depressed will turn to chocolate. It's a mood-altering substance. It's pretty amazing stuff. You can see why people become chocoholics, and I truly am a reforming chocoholic. I rarely touch the stuff these days. But the downside of all of that is that most chocolate is full of sugar. Eat too much of it, and you come off that high very quickly into a well-documented, scientifically understood sugar crash. 
Eat too much of it on a constant basis and you'll end up with fatty liver, a precursor to dangerous and debilitating cirrhosis of the liver, high triglycerides in your blood, which are one of the best indicators of heart attack and stroke, and high insulin levels, which will cause weight gain and ultimately diabetes. So why the science lesson on chocolate? Simply to make this point, inevitably something that promises everything, like chocolate, will have a downside. Too much of a good thing leads to bad things. And it's exactly the same with money, or at least our desire for money. Money is a mood-altering compound. Jesus had more to say about money, or more accurately, our desire for wealth, than pretty much any other subject, because he knew And he knows that wealth is even more addictive and even more dangerous than chocolate. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust will consume and where thieves will break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Notice here how Jesus isn't talking so much about money per se, but about treasures. The original Greek word used there means a place in which good and precious things are laid up, a treasury, a storehouse, a repository. The best way to think of it in today's terms is perhaps someone who has precious jewellery. I was in Dubai recently and I saw an amazing necklace. It must have had 50 or 60 four or five carat diamonds in it. So I walked into the store and I asked how much. Hmm, about 5.8 million US dollars. Now, if you owned that necklace, I'm sure you'd have a safe in your house and you'd keep it locked away in that safe. So that safe would be your treasury, the place where you protect your wealth. And so Jesus is using that picture here, not to talk about the necklace itself, not to talk about the money itself, but our attitude towards it. When our money becomes our treasure, it becomes something that we protect. Our life starts to revolve around it, and so your heart becomes tied up with it. And when your heart starts to crave for it, you want more and more, just like the Cadbury's dairy milk chocolate I was talking about before. So why is this a problem? Surely there's nothing inherently bad about money. No, not at all. The problem comes when our desire for money turns our heart away from God and towards the pursuit of wealth. I personally have been there. I've got the T-shirt, and let me tell you, it wasn't a pretty time in my life. In fact, it almost led to my complete ruin and destruction. God loves you. God loves me, and he wants the best for us. His very best for us is Jesus. But wherever your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So in other words, you start storing up treasures for yourself in your heart, and your heart will grow hard and cold and strong like the metal of that safe to protect your treasures. And that's why the very next thing that Jesus said on this is also true. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. In other words, you can't be a dog with two masters. Because if one says stay and the other says go, which one are you going to obey? You cannot serve both God and wealth at the same time. 
Interesting again here, Jesus doesn't use the word money. Instead, he talks about wealth. The Aramaic word is mammon, which means, again, treasure or riches or storehouse. It carries with it the sense that the money has become more than just money, but instead it's more like an idol, wealth personified, if you will. In other words, the problem isn't the money. It's our desire for the money, because the desire ends up being the guiding force of your life. You see the problem. You can't be a dog with two masters. You'll either serve the one or the other, but not both. So money ends up supplanting God in your life, and there are consequences to that. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, and they're trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Speaking of someone who used to want to be rich, I can tell you that my desires were indeed harmful, that I was indeed plunged into ruin and destruction, I was indeed pierced with many pains to the point where I almost took my own life, all for the love of money. The thing with chocoholics is that they don't want to own up to their addiction. My dad had diabetes. He always had some chocolate tucked away in a drawer somewhere that he was eating, hidden from the rest of us, until eventually it killed him. And the thing with moneyholics, wealthholics, is that it's exactly the same. Money is such a good thing that we kid ourselves, we delude ourselves, and we go on pursuing it to our own destruction. Right in the middle of his teaching about wealth and the desire for it, Jesus said this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What he's talking about is self-delusion. So I'm going to put a challenge here before you right now. Is your desire for wealth drawing you away from God and ruining your life? Does retail therapy give you that dopamine hit and make you feel better? Are you deluding yourself, kidding yourself, telling yourself you don't have a problem, but really you're hiding this nasty little secret in your heart? A heart, by the way, which is starting to grow hard and cold towards God. Is that what's happening in your life? taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.